Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. Hey, Courtney, it's about to be Turkey Day in America. In other words, Thanksgiving. Now, not long ago, the tradition would be for kids all over the country to make handprint turkeys and hear about the pilgrims feasting with Native American Indians in a peaceful first Thanksgiving feast. Oh, and Carol, the nostalgic smells of construction paper and paste take me back to elementary school. But I am glad that kids today are getting a bit more of a well-rounded picture of the relationship between the Plymouth settlers, better known as the pilgrims, and the indigenous indigenous native tribes who already lived here. But I don't think we're going to be talking about the goings-on at Plymouth Rock in this episode. No, we're not. No, we're not. We've got something else in mind, and it doesn't have anything to do with a mythical feast between Native Americans and pilgrims. Instead, we'll be talking about some interesting and little-known facts we should know about the relationship between Black African Americans and Native Americans, particularly those known as the Five Tribes, the Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw Creek, and Seminole nations. Now, according to Ebony Magazine, the earliest recorded African and Native American contact occurred in April 1502, when the first enslaved Africans were taken to Hispanola, and when some Africans escaped to Santa Domingo. The first Black Native Americans emerged from these groups. Wow, and Carol, that's a connection that goes back even further than the Plymouth colonies. It does indeed. Also, it's important to note that before enslaved people were emancipated, the relationship between Black African Americans and Native Americans was often rocky, as some Native tribes sided with the Confederacy and owned slave plantations. Wow, that is a fact I just recently learned. Well, we're all learning, my dear niece. That's a good thing. Not all Native American tribes, though, enslaved Africans. Early in the colonial period, Native Americans were sometimes enslaved alongside Africans. They intermarried and lived through common struggles. Some even coordinated armed resistance to white settlers. Later, Native American tribes sometimes took in and harbored runaway slaves, accepting them into their communities and blending into their cultures. There is a tribe who was very famous for their connection to African Americans who ran away from slavery, or I like to say self-emancipated. I like your term. Very interesting and appropriate. Yes, that tribe was the Seminole Natives of Florida, who did form communities with escaped Africans, creating what became known as Black Seminoles. Hundreds traveled with the Seminole Nation when they were forced to relocate to what later became known as Oklahoma, while some stayed in Florida. 
Another important tribe involving Black African-Americans was the Cherokee Nation. The 1835 census showed that some 10% of the Cherokee people had African blood. Now, before the Civil War, the Africans living amongst Cherokee people were either enslaved by them or some were free, but they did not have tribal citizenship. In 1866, the Cherokee Nation signed a treaty with the U.S. government recognizing those people of African heritage as full tribal citizens. Now, Courtney, I want you to hold on to that fact. It's going to be very important later. Now, there's so much to learn about the complex relationship between Black African-Americans and Native Americans, so we suggest if the listeners want to read a colorful book about this history, they could start with Black Indians by William Lauren Katz. It's a fascinating resource with stories about that connection. Now, speaking of stories, I'm certain you have one, so let's hear what you have for us this time, Courtney. Well, of course, I have a story to share, and I want to give a huge thank you to the Seminole Nation Museum's amazing website, SeminoleNation.org. They gave me so much information about today's story, and you can find them at SeminoleMuseum.org. So, Carol, what if I told you that America lost a war on its own soil, and they just lied about it? I'd be shocked. I'd be shocked. I want to know more. Well, this is what happened with what people would call the Seminole Wars and the Gullah Wars. But we're going to concentrate on the Seminole Wars. There were three of them. And we're actually really going to focus on Seminole, the Seminole War, the second one. And that happened in the state of Florida, as you can tell with the Seminole Native tribes, but they also had some allies. Now, at the beginning of Florida's existence in America as we know it, it was ruled by both Spain and then Britain. And they offered anyone freedom who would defend Florida's borders against their enemies, either if it was Spain, the British settlers, and when it was Britain, the American rebels who were fighting the Revolutionary War. Now, Florida instantly became a beacon for those self-emancipated slaves or runaway slaves that we talked about er earlier, and Seminoles escaping Mississippi and Alabama, which harbored their enemies and other warring tribes. Now, around the 1800s, right around the end of the Revolutionary War, Southern planters began to worry and demanded U.S. military intervention regarding the recapture of now several generations of free African-Americans living in Florida. Now, by 1811, President James Madison authorized covert slave-catching invasions into Florida. In 1816, General Andrew Jackson, supported by President James Monroe, was ordered to attack and restore all stolen Negroes to their rightful owners. Oh, so basically they were property, so they were supposed to go be um, captured and returned. Exactly. Even if they had lived free their entire lives. Hmm. Okay. So in 1889, the United States government purchased Florida from Spain. And those raids that I talked about earlier with Andrew Jackson became commonplace. 
triggering the first Seminole War. Now, the native Seminole tribes, along with their African-American allies, used the same tactics that the American Revolutionary War veterans used during their war with Britain. So it was more like guerrilla warfare, hiding in trees, using the terrain. So the United States Army could never really get a hold to them because they were fighting in a general military style when these people were, were using those types of covert tactics. Hmm, okay, that was pretty clever on their part. Very clever. Now, the second Seminole War was between 1835 and 1842, and it cost the U.S. government $40 million and 1,500 lives. Now, that's eight times the initial purchase of Florida itself. Hmm. Now, this was the largest and longest maintained slave revolt in United States history, even though I would consider these people fighting for their freedom that they already had. Americans did consider it a slave revolt. But together, African-Americans led by John Horse, who we'll talk about later, as well as several military figures in the Seminole Nation, which was Osacola and Wildcat, they formed a formidable fighting force. Now, everything culminated on Christmas Day, 1837, in the north corner of Florida's Lake Okeechobee. There were 450 Seminole warriors mixed in with their African-American allies, and they waited for Colonel Zachary Taylor to arrive with 70 Delaware Indian tribesmen, 180 Tennessee volunteers, and 800 U.S. infantrymen. That was a formidable force. That was a formidable force against 450 other people. Now, the Tennessee riflemen marched in firing, and they were soon followed by the other uh, other soldiers brought along with them by Colonel Zachary Taylor. The battle lasted only two and a half hours, and when the smoke cleared, there were 26 dead U.S. soldiers, 112 wounded, and only four Seminole Native tribesmen dead, and no prisoners taken. Courtney, I didn't know about this, and our listeners probably didn't either. You mean to tell me the U.S. Army lost a major battle on American soil? That's really a revelation. For a moment, let's just take a break because I want to hear how this all worked out. Okay, we're back. But before you finish, I want to remind our listeners that if you like our podcast, consider supporting us by clicking the listener support button in the show notes. Also, go to our website at www.whyaretheysoangry.com and take our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. So, Courtney, the last I heard, the U.S. Army was in disarray and defeated, right? That's absolutely right. The battle is over, the dust is cleared, and obviously the winner would be the African-Americans, who were now calling themselves Black Seminoles, and the Native Seminole tribes of Florida, correct? That sounds like the group, only a 450 or so, right? Exactly. Now, history tells it a little bit different. History declares directly from Colonel Taylor, the Indians were driven in every direction. 
that was an out an out lie. And that's on file in the United States government. And this is what pushed Taylor forward in his military career, his win of the Second Seminole War. And eventually that's what led him to be president. His win? That wasn't a win. It was a rout. Well, his documented win. Remember, uh, history history is written by the victors. Right. So he wasn't really the victor. He just walked away. He just walked away and made himself the victor. So what really happened? Well, the outcome of the war was very simple. The United States military, in exchange for being allowed to lie about their win of the Second Seminole War, granted the Black Seminoles and their families their freedom on the condition that they left Florida and headed west. So by 1842, more than 500 Black Seminole men and their families began migrating west. They settled in Oklahoma, Texas, and even Mexico. Now, the Black Seminole Rebellion during the Second Seminole War was not only the largest rebellion in United States history, it was the only one that it was even partially successful and was used by the leading abolitionists of the day to argue for the emancipation of African-American slaves. So this was pretty historic. It was very historic. They cited that battle and that agreement all the way up to the time that President Lincoln was even thinking about signing the Emancipation Proclamation. Abolitionists were always hearkening back to that battle. Now, one of the heroes of the Second Seminole War was John Horse, who I mentioned earlier. He he gained a legendary status with the Black Seminoles um, that he was leading. Now, he stepped up again, leading the Black Seminoles through their Western expansion, so through Oklahoma, Texas, and Mexico, because they still faced slavers and warring tribes, but he was a prolific leader who they still remember today. But the legacy of the Black Seminoles did not even end with John Horse. After the Civil War, that group of Black Seminoles that branched off to Mexico came back north looking for work, and they formed in 1872 the Seminole Negro Indian Scouts. And in between those scouts, they won four congressional medals of honor for valor in the field, and they played a leading role in the pacification of the Texas frontier. Well, Courtney, what you just shared is definitely history very few people know about. Certainly, these are not the images we see in those old cowboy and Indian movies. Now, personally, my grandfather, your great-grandfather, migrated from Florida to South Carolina. And often, we remarked about how his unusual complexion and hair texture were nothing like Blacks of mostly African descent. But unfortunately, like most Black African-American families, we rarely talked about our grandparents' lineage. And now... After hearing your story, I wonder if your grandfather, my my grandfather, your great-grandfather has some connection to the Seminoles. But I regret to know that we were short-sighted and never investigated that. At any rate, John Horse and the Black Seminoles had a colorful and interesting history, Courtney. They did. But what I understand now is that the relationship between Black African-Americans and Native Americans even today is just as interesting. 
Yes, it is. But we'll have to briefly step back in history to explain it. Remember earlier in the show, I told you about Native American tribes that had enslaved African-Americans. Now, one of these tribes, the Cherokee, were forcibly removed to Indian territory, of course, now known as Oklahoma, during the period known as the Trail of Tears. The Cherokee took their slaves with them. By 1861, there were 4,000 Black slaves living among the Cherokees. Now, after the Civil War, the tribe signed a treaty that granted former slaves or freedmen, quote, all the rights of Native Cherokees. Well, that's good. These former enslaved people were now considered full tribe members with all rights and privileges, correct? Well, yes, for a time. But importantly, there was something called the Dawes Acts of 1887 that had a big impact on Native Americans uh, that had now settled in Oklahoma. First, the acts abolished tribal uh, sovereignty on reservations that allowed for tribal governments. Uh, It also forced Oklahoma tribes to accept individual land allotments rather than the traditional communal model of tribal land ownership, which actually stripped millions of acres from tribal control. Now, as bad as this was for some, it meant It was valuable to be a member of a tribe since only certified members got titles to land. For example, oil was discovered on some land, making some Native Americans suddenly rich. That's when the rules about who was and who was not a tribal member became important because it was the key to wealth. As an aside, there are stories of white men marrying into the Osage tribe, then killing their wives to gain the land and oil. But that's another story, Courtney. At any rate, finding oil on native land was a big deal, and tribal members found themselves instantly wealthy. And Carol, that sounds like that could have been a good thing for Black African Americans who intermarried with Native Americans or have been granted tribal membership, right? Yes, yes, you would think so, because by being recognized as Native American, they would have been entitled to the land awarded to individual tribe members and the newfound wealth. But it wasn't that simple. Here's how it goes. Tribal membership has never been subject to written rules. But at this time, back in the late 1800s, to determine who was and wasn't a Native, the U.S. government hired census takers to count tribal members. But the process proved very inaccurate. Not surprisingly, many Native Americans didn't trust the U.S. government or their white census takers, and they refused to take part. If they did take part, though, sometimes parents counted some of their children as white and others as Indian. Blacks who were part Indian or who were former Indian slaves were relegated to freedmen status or left out entirely. The census takers came up and set up tents on the Indian lands to take the census. One tent was called the Indian tent. The other tent was called the darky tent, sometimes known as the N-word tent. Formerly enslaved people who had been considered tribal members were sent to that tent and usually ended up not counting as tribal members. The white census takers were known to arbitrarily deny some Indians tribal membership because they did not look, quote, Indian. Now, though these census lists were hopelessly flawed, they became the legal standard for tribal affiliation. If someone was listed in the census as Native American, they received a U.S. issued document called a Certificate of Degree of Indian Blood. As you can imagine, 
few, if any, Black African-Americans received the certificate. So despite being freed by the tribe and even intermarried, Black African-Americans were still left out of any legal protections given to the Native tribe that they belonged to? You heard it right, my dear niece. We looked into articles in the AP and the Washington Post and other sources to see what's happening today and found the Dawes Acts have had an impact in well into the 20th and 21st centuries. For example, in 1979, a new tribal constitution made it more difficult to prove Creek ancestry. Black Creeks in particular found it almost impossible to claim the identity of their ancestors. And as a result, thousands lost their Creek citizenship. In August 2018, DeMario Solomon Simmons, the lead attorney representing six native uh, plaintiffs, including his grandmother, filed a suit against the Muscogee Creek Nation and the U.S. Department of uh, Interior Department to fully restore the citizenship of Black Creeks. Unfortunately, the suit was dismissed with a federal judge ruling that they should go through the tribe's own legal process first then go back to the U.S. courts. Okay, now that sounds like a long, complicated process. Of course it would be, and it will be. But the suit with the creek wasn't the only one. As recently as 2007, Cherokees amended their tribal institution making, quote, Indian blood a requirement for citizenship. As a result, some 2,800 descendants of Cherokee Black African-American freedmen were excluded from membership. You'll recall I mentioned uh, earlier in, the, in, a pro, in our episode to remember the business about the Cherokee. Now, the Cherokee Nation faced a similar lawsuit as the Creek suit, but it was resolved very differently. In 2017, after a federal court ruled that the Cherokee freedmen have a right to tribal citizenship, the nation accepted the ruling, did not appeal, and immediately began processing citizenship applications for Black freedmen. Well, that was a much better outcome. What do you foresee as the future for the relationship between Black African Americans and Native Americans? Well, we can only hope that it will improve and that these kinds of disputes will end. Uh, there's an author, Hillary N. Weaver, who puts it very well. She says both groups should try to work together better because, quote, we share common struggles, including violence in our communities, substance abuse, and greater morbid morbidity and mortality from many diseases that is found in the general population. Both groups have been the subject of medical exploitation, but we also share common strengths, including the value placed on the group as opposed to the individual, the survival of hundreds of years of colonization and oppression, and a strong sense of spirituality. So I really uh, am putting my hopes on the things that this author has has uh, said. And it's my personal hope when the dust settles around the citizenship lawsuits, both groups will coalesce to overcome the systemic racism that both have endured for decades. Well, I think that's a hope that we should all have. Now we're wrapping this all up, our episode for, for today. So I want to wish everyone a happy Thanksgiving, no matter how you're celebrating it, away from family, through Zoom. We're family's going to do a Zoom call. But if you miss us in between episodes or you think about us on Thanksgiving, give us a visit on Facebook at Why Are They So Angry? Give us a like and a follow on Instagram at Why Are They So Angry? Follow us on Twitter at W-A-T-S-A underscore 
online. And of course, go to our website where you can take the course Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It at whyaretheysoangry.com. That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it.